Hey there, Pastor Mark here. It's our prayer that this message would encourage and equip you in your relationship with Jesus. We're able to provide this content due to the joyful generosity of our financial partners. And if you'd be willing to join that tribe and help get some sermons like this around the world, you can donate at harvestbaptist.info slash give. God bless. Would you do me a favor and go to Romans chapter number six? Romans six, we'll be there in a few minutes. Uh, but hang with me, I'd like to set the stage a little bit and help you understand uh, what's happening and why we want to read Romans chapter number six. In seminary, uh, I had to write a lot of papers. It was just kind of part and parcel of going through that level, level of education. But one of the papers I had to write was on the constitutional nature of man, which sounds like, you know, if you wanted to read a paper on the constitutional nature of man, it sounds like a snooze fest, right? It does not sound uh, like a novel. And I thought that it would be like many of the papers that I wrote, profitable to some degree, but by and large forgotten by the time, you know, I flipped to the new year or something. But it ended up being one of the most influential and helpful papers that I, that I wrote in all of my time at seminary, which basically is trying to get at the core of what makes a man a man, what makes a human a human, or other, in other words, you could say, what distinguishes a human from, say, an animal, or what distinguishes a human from, say, an angel? Like, what makes us unique? And the, there's a complex answer, but the really simple answer is that humans are uniquely immaterial and material bound up together. That an, an animal would have a body, but not a spirit. An angel would be a spirit, but wouldn't have a body. But we are this unique kind of hybrid that has both body and spirit bound up with each other. And kind of in between those two, if you read Psalm 8, you would find that there's all this glory given to God, and we're told, like, what is man, God, that you would be mindful of him, and that the Son of Man, that you would visit him, because you've made man a little lower than the angels, but you've given us dominion over the beast of the field, and the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passes through the paths of the seas. It's this idea, biblically, that we're kind of in the middle, and we are immaterial and material bound up together. Now, there's a billion implications from that. So if our secular culture tells you that you're all material, like you're all just the body, and there's really nothing to pay attention to in the immaterial, it's just you and the reason that you feel that way, the reason you make your choices, the reason free will is really an illusion, it's all just your neural synapses, it's all material, everything can be solved materially with a pill, like your secular culture will tell you that, and that's not true. Uh, religious culture tends at times to say that like you are the immaterial you, period, end of sentence, and your body is just like the house or the shell that really houses the real you. And that's not true either because you're, you're bound up in ways that are deeply profound. This is why like a zebra won't blush, but you will, right? Because this embarrassment that is immaterial makes its way into the material. You start to, to have blood that flows to your face. And this is played out in all kinds of ways, whether it is arousal or panic attacks or all kinds of ways that our body, the immaterial and material us, uh, correspond with each other. And this has implications that are really positive for Christians and that we, we want to care for bodies, right? We want to like have compassionate medical care. We want to start hospitals. We want to not just 
relegate the body as something that's trivial or unimportant because that's not true. Even eternity holds a resurrected body for us. But it also has implications in ways that maybe we, we do things the wrong way. Like you can try to perhaps treat problems and people as strictly spiritual and ignore the material. And the point is you have, to, you have to bind them both up. So I think you would agree with this. If someone breaks their arm, they don't need to memorize a Bible verse, right? Like they broke their arm. That's not really a spiritual problem. They need to set the bone and put a cast on it and it needs to be treated. But on the same hand, if someone is struggling with guilt for their sin, they don't need a pill. They need to confess their sin to God. And obviously it's tough to, to really put clear categories because we are so enmeshed together. So when you come to things like depression or anxiety, like you can't just say pray more, nor can you say, well, just sleep more. Like these correspond and you don't want to be reductionistic. Now I could say a lot more on that, but that's, that's a big philosophical, even theological introduction to say just this very basic point. If you want to grow spiritually, you can't ignore the material you. So raise of hands, because I don't want to assume that the majority of you want to grow spiritually, but let's put it to the test. How many of you would say, I would like a greater level of spiritual health. I would like to grow spiritually in my life. Raise of hands. Okay. I don't know if that's everybody, but it's certainly the vast majority of the room. Here's a, a very basic point. Your spiritual life is, whether you like it or not, deeply connected to your physical life. And here's a premise. You cannot fully mature to look like Jesus without taking into account the relationship that you have with your body and its desires. I'm going to repeat that because this is going to set the stage for what we're going to talk about today. You cannot fully mature to look like Jesus without taking into account the relationship that you have with your body and its desires. And most Americans, most American Christians, have an unhealthy relationship with our body and its desires. John Mark Comer does a great job of summarizing this for American Christians that he says in our culture, on the one hand, we have this culture of like food excess, which really does some damage to our body and its desires. On the other hand, we have this culture of body idolatry, and he calls it the twin sister of body insecurity. And these come to play like at the same time. So we are a culture of food excess, no doubt about it. Like Americans are known all over the world as this place where there are farmers and there are restaurants and there are grocery stores and there are Thanksgiving meals and there are food programs for the poor. And it is this place where we eat three meals a day and it's not just beans and rice all of the time. It is this place that is known for having an abundance of food, so much so that food waste is a thing for us. And it may not have ever occurred to you that like a lot of the world doesn't deal with that at all because they're just struggling to get like some food, but like food waste is a thing for us. They say that the average American home, if you're a family of four, that you throw away food that is edible that you could have eaten, like, you know, those leftovers that you put in the fridge and you intended on eating them and then like a week went by and you didn't, or that like box of spinach. I don't know why spinach always comes in a box and not a bag, but you know, it's in the, it's in the fridge 
and then you like use a little bit of it, but hardly any of it, and then the changing of the guard happens, right? Where the old spinach goes in the trash and the new box of spinach goes in the fridge. You know what I'm talking about? We throw away $1,500 worth of food on average annually of just stuff, right? And you can even see this like in my contemporaries, like parents who are parenting young children with me right now. How many of you are 40 years and above and you grew up in in a home where you cleaned your plate? If it was in front of you, you cleaned your plate, that was the rule, okay? There's, There's a smattering of hands. That's not a thing anymore, I'm not, I'm not arguing that it should or shouldn't be. I'm just saying that, that most of my friends who are raising kids don't have that rule because we don't look at food as, as hard to come by as it once was. We, we take it for granted. The vast majority of us didn't grow our own food or really, it's just like, oh, it's a few bucks, whatever, we can throw some away. You know, it, it's, it's just a little bit like, it's just different. Our relationship with food and our culture is different. We have, we have so much of it. And because we have so much of it, it would stand to reason that the data is probably true, that 75% of Americans, they say, are overweight. 30% of our kids, they say, are overweight. This is a place where appetite and hunger are like one and the same, where we just, if we want something, we, we eat it, we give into it. On the other hand, we have this weird like obsession with bodies and fitness and what some have called body idolatry. And I love how Comer puts it, it's twin sister body insecurity. And if you think about like going to the grocery store, it's a weird experience because you're gonna get your cart full of whatever it is. Then you're going to go in line and in line, what do you got? You got magazine racks on either side. And what are like the two most pronounced things that are in those magazine racks? On your left-hand side, you're going to have this picture of like seven-layer cake and pumpkin pies and cinnamon rolls, and the headline is going to be desserts to die for this Thanksgiving, right? Then on the right-hand side, you're going to have like health and fitness and whoever like the most recent Marvel superhero is in the movies is going to be there with his shirt off and like 20 abs and muscles everywhere and, and you know, like living your best life. It's like... Just think about like how contrary that is, right? Like seven layer cake and this, they don't go together. And, but no one stops to think about or talk about like even that person who is the, the superhero, who's probably like genetically like 1% of the population. But even that is there's a lot of photography and a lot of lighting and a lot of editing and Photoshop afterwards. Like he doesn't even look like that really in real life much less you are supposed to look like that, but we, we try, and then we become very insecure. So with that, there's a whole, this has been around for a while, but there is definitely like a tsunami of eating disorders that are especially affecting young people. There are, especially our young girls, like insecurity that comes with this, and what it turns into is on both sides, People have this really unhealthy relationship with their bodies and food and the desires that are associated with that, and that's profound. And it certainly has an impact on our spiritual lives. And if you actually take a minute to read the Bible and filter the Bible through this idea of are there food, are there desires, is our body working against us, you'll find that it comes up like all over the place. So you would start at the beginning in Genesis 3, right? And the original sin, 
the temptation of, of Eve and Adam. And what's going on there? Well, there's a lot that's going on there. There's deception from a serpent who's subtle. There is doubting the word of God. There's lots of things. But at its core, what went on with original sin? At its core, there was a yummy food that they were not supposed to eat, but it looked good. The text says as much. It was desirable to look at. This looks yummy and an inability to not eat what they were supposed to not eat. Like, I think that's a fair statement about the story, right? And this is played out even in the life of Jesus, who has his greatest temptation with the devil in the wilderness. And how does that temptation start? It's almost like this replay of, of the Genesis account in many ways, where he is fasting and he's there and he's come and he's tempted to turn the stones to bread. And what happens in that temptation is this temptation to give in to the desires of hunger and this to eat or not to eat, right? And that begins to, to even domino into the New Testament. If you read the New Testament with a critical eye at all, you'll see that this comes up over and over again, where Paul, like, denounces these people who he tells them that, quote, their belly is their God, who like they give in to their fleshly appetites no matter what, and they are ruled by their fleshly appetites. Paul even at times condemns himself and talks about how his flesh and the spirit are like warring with each other and fighting with each other. And you know what I'm talking about. Like I don't, you can put a lot of language around it, but you know exactly what that is. And our flesh isn't our body, but it's like cousin to our body. Our flesh is, is certainly a negative thing in the scriptures. It is this idea that there are bodily urges and desires that if we give in to those desires, they will actually do violence to our love for Jesus and they will help us. So like the flesh and the lusts of the flesh, those sorts of things would be like, it could be gluttony. It could be sexual sins of any kind, fornication and adultery and giving into uh, bodily impulses in a way that is not healthy or biblical or Christian. It could be substance abuse of being tied down to nicotine and smoking and vaping, or some of you would know full well what it is to like not want to give into the desires to drink that or to smoke that or to do those drugs, but there is this pull inside of you and your, and your flesh wants it and trying to war with that, right? And the solution that we were presented with in the scriptures takes on like a lot of different uh, words, but it's all the same concept. Where in Colossians, Paul says we should mortify our flesh or we should kill our flesh. Not literally, but we should take the, those desires and we should want to kill them off, starve them out. We're told in Romans 12 that we should present our bodies a living sacrifice. We're told in Galatians that they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and the lust. And then Romans 6 is where I wanted you to land. Look, if you would, in verse number 12. Don't read this through a strictly spiritual lens and ignore the plain teaching of the text that sin and struggling spiritually with sin is deeply connected to the physical you. So here it is, verse number 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. What does he mean mortal body? Is, is that an analogy for something? No, it means your you, your physical you. That you should obey it and the lust thereof. 
neither yield ye your members or your body parts, right? If you cut my arm off, you dismember me, your members. Don't yield your body parts as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members or body parts as instruments of righteousness unto God. So here's the point. You, as a human, are unique in that you're, you're, you're immaterial material mixed together in profound ways. You can't pull apart. And this has a host of benefits and lessons we can learn, but it also comes with some unique pitfalls. That that material you, specifically the flesh, those desires, the affections that are wrong and malformed, can push you, those bodily urges, can push you into a pattern of sin and away from God if you're not careful in the clear instruction and even practice from the life of Jesus is that you want to, to kill that off. You want to, to, I hate to use the word tame, but for lack of a better word, tame that. You want to work against that, put effort there. And the question is, is there like, away from the life of Jesus where his ways and his words would give us a practice or something we could do to help us accomplish this. Because it's one thing to say, they that are Christ have crucified the flesh, mortify your flesh, yield your, yield your body as members of, of righteousness. How? Like, that sounds good in theory, but can you give me something practical to make that happen? And the answer is yes, there's a lot of ways that you could do that. Almost any practice that uh, centers around the idea of abstinence would work. But the most profound one that you really see in scripture is the practice of fasting. In the last couple of weeks, I've given you practices of engagement, that we should be generous that we should evangelize, but you can't just have a life. If your Christianity is centered on practices of engagement and there's no practices of abstinence, which is certainly a pitfall that many Christians fall into and many churches kind of subsidize that and help them fall into it. If there's no abstinence, mm, you're gonna hurt, you're gonna hurt. If the sum total of your Christianity is, well, I come to church and I read my Bible and I pray, and I try to share my faith, and I, and I serve, and I'm in community, I'm in a group trying to study the Bible together with people, all great things, all great things, but it's all engagement. And I have, I have met so many Christians that would say, I'm trying all this, but I am still getting run over by my flesh all of these sexual desires and all of these desires for substance and all of this stuff, like it feels like I am just being drug around by my flesh and I have a really unhealthy relationship with my body and its desires. And the reason for that would be you don't have much practice of abstinence and you have to balance that. The practice of abstinence helps you with this. And like I said, lots of ones that you could employ, but fasting would be at the top of the list. So let's read quickly a little bit about this from the life of Jesus. There's a lot we could say, but I'll start with just a few simple texts. Matthew 4, Jesus is led up of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward, he was a hungry. He was hungry. 
makes sense, right? If you didn't eat food for 40 days, you'd be hungry too. Like, that's very common. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. And he answered and said, I'm on a gluten-free diet. Can I make them vegetables? And, no, he didn't say that. He said, it's written, man's not going to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. There's more to life than physical food. I am, I'm wanting to feast on God and his word. Matthew 6, this, this teaching, so there's three little vignettes of teaching that Jesus gives, all follow the same pattern. The in secrecy, give to the poor and don't make a show about it. In secrecy, enter into your closet and pray. And then we get the Lord's prayer, the model prayer, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, so on and so forth. And then immediately after that, you get the in secrecy fast. And we talk a lot about giving and generosity, and we talk a lot about uh, praying, but we very rarely talk about fasting. This will be, uh, in my seven years of pastoring here, my third sermon on fasting, but I vividly remember the first one I, I preached was in 2017, and I had multiple people, I wouldn't say a flood, but close to a flood, of people come up to me afterwards and say, that's the only sermon I've ever heard on fasting. I've never heard that before. Like I know the concept, but no one's ever taught on it at all. And Jesus goes into fasting. And here's what he says. Moreover, when you fast, and people have long pointed out, not if you fast, but when, there's this expectation that we would, or an assumption that we would, be not as the hypocrites, sad countenance, they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast, right? They're doing it for people's applause and approval of you're so spiritual and look at you, wow, what self-control you have. You're an amazing person. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. They're, those motives are not right. But you, thou, when thou fastest, anoint your head, wash your face, wash your face, put some product in your hair. Don't look all disheveled on purpose that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. So here's what Jesus assumes. Number one, you'll do this. Number two, your motives will probably be off, and you're gonna need a motive adjustment. And number three, if you do it with the right motives, there's a reward from God that is profound. Jesus actually presses in perhaps to this reward when he says in Matthew chapter number nine, when the disciples cannot cast this demon out of this person and Jesus does it. And they come to him and they say privately, which they wouldn't want to do it publicly because you imagine they'd be embarrassed to some degree. Why could we not cast them out? Like, what's the deal? What, what's going on? We struggled here. And he said unto them, this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. I would phrase it this way, guys, you want to push the ball over the spiritual goal line, you got to pray and fast for this one. Like that's going to move the needle in ways that are really profound and are going to help you. Now there's a lot more I could say because if you read the Bible, fasting's all over the place. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's all over the place. Moses fasted for 40 days, Elijah fasted for 40 days, Jesus fasted for 40 days. 
There are national fasts where people are called to do it together jointly. Esther, they fast because she's going to go make a petition before the king and they want favor of God as she goes in and, and they do that. They fast in wartime that God would go before them. You would find that they, they fast in Nineveh as repentance for their sins. You would find the early church that they fast when they have a big decision to make. Paul and Barnabas, should we send them out as missionaries? They pray, they fast, they send them out. You would find that when they want to elect leaders in the local church that Paul and Barnabas had this habit that they would pray and they would fast in Acts 14 before they made a big decision to put a leader in a local church. Like it's all over the place. This idea of fasting, but I am not obtuse. I am aware that for most people, and let's just ignore most people, most of you sitting here, this is not like at the top of the list on sermons you want to hear. Because it's very convicting to us. A, because it's hard. B, because most of us don't really engage with this. And my goal is not to condemn. My, no, my goal is not a guilt trip. I'll be the first to admit that while I do tinker with this occasionally, I am definitely a novice on this and I have not figured it all out. I haven't done a 40-day fast or a 30-day fast or a 20-day fast or I could keep going down. Like, haven't been there, done that. Like, I've, I'm, I'm with you and trying to learn and grow in this and train in this. But I've tinkered with it enough to know that most Christians in the West, this is like a forgotten practice. Richard Foster put it in his book, uh, Spirit of the Disciplines, which he has a chapter on fasting. And he said in his, in his book, I was looking for research. I went back like 40 years. And I was looking for a book from the American church anywhere that would be on the subject of fasting, and I couldn't find anything. He wrote his book in the late 70s. Since then, there has actually been uh, quite a few books written on the, on the topic that are really helpful. But he says in his chapter on fasting, he says that the, the practice is now dusty and rusty. That in the West, it's a practice that is sitting there collecting dust and growing rust and his argument that he makes is that we should dust this off and kick the rust off of it, and, and it's time has come back. Like we should engage in this. And I would, I would agree with him. But I'm well aware that most people don't have a desire to do this. Most people would go so far as to think it's weird or even cultish. Like there are many people that think fasting is up there with like, take my shoes off and walk on hot coals, you know, with bare feet. Like this is something like, I don't, I, nah, that ain't for me, but it is for you. And I've told you all through this series that we're going to give you eight or nine different practices. And I would not try to recommend being an expert on all of them at the same time. I would pick one or two. And this may be the one for you. This may not be the one for you. Next year, we'll circle back around to this and we'll spend some more time on it. And hopefully it'll be the one for all of us for a month or so. But let's at least prime the pump and understand, A, what is fasting? B, why would we do it? And C, practically, how can we do this? Like, how can we practically implement this? So let me just define what is fasting. I like the definition that Donald Whitney gives. He says, Christian fasting is a believer's voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. Now that's simple, but there's a lot there. 
It is a believer's voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. So what this means is, by definition, fasting is not abstaining from things other than food. It's very uh, in vogue in churches now that if fasting is talked about, that it's like, well, just pick your poison. Do a social media fast. Do a coffee fast. Do a TV fast. Do a only buy consumables for a month and don't buy any clothes for a month fast. That's not really fasting. That is abstaining, and there's, there's a place for that. Those things are healthy in their own right, but it, it does a disservice to the word fasting when we make fasting a not about food. So it is abstaining from food voluntarily. It's also abstaining for spiritual purposes. So you can fast for a non-spiritual purpose, I would, I would bet most of you probably have, right? The doctor told you, we got to do blood work. You can't eat any food for 12 hours leading up to your blood work. So you got all hangry and you did your blood work and then you went and ate a donut afterwards, right? You know what I'm talking about? Or worse, you had to get a colonoscopy and you not only had to not eat, but you had to drink that 18 gallons of, you know, like that's, that's some of you have been there, done that. You know what it's like, but that's not for a spiritual purpose. That's, that's, for, that's for physical examination. You could even do a diet, right? And that's fine. If you want to clear up your skin and lose some weight and get cut, knock yourself out. But just don't call it Christian fasting if it's not for a spiritual purpose, right? Intermittent fasting, uh, things even like the Daniel fast. Anyone heard of the Daniel fast in the last 10 years or so, okay? The Daniel fast is basically a vegan diet. It's what it is. Um, But it looks at (coughs) the life of Daniel, (coughs) excuse me, where him and his buddies refused to eat the king's meat in Babylon. And they say, well, just give us a bunch of vegetables and some water and see if we don't look better 10 days from now. And it's this idea like for 10 days, cleanse your system and only eat vegetables, do no animal products, no dairy, no, no meat, no whatever, drink only water, see if you don't feel better, see if you don't look better. And that's not untrue, but it's not a fast because you're still eating a whole bunch of stuff, right? It's not, you can't eat. You're still eating a bunch of, it's, that's a restricted diet. That's what that is. Fasting is the idea that as a Christian, I'm going to lay aside food and I'm going to lay it aside for spiritual purposes, more to come on the spiritual purposes. That's what it is. Why would we do this? Like, that sounds miserable. Like, Thanksgiving's coming. I like to eat. You know, there's, why would I do that? There's a lot of reasons. I'm only going to elaborate on maybe two or three of these at the most. I've given you eight different ones. You can research them in kind of the biblical context later. Maybe in next year, we'll get back to more of the why. But I just want to give you a couple. I don't have time this morning to build it all out, but I'll give you enough. Enough to help you understand that there can be a profound impact when you practice the practice of fasting. So the primary reason is to starve your flesh and feed the spirit. And by starve your flesh, I'm referring to the biblical context of flesh. Those desires that actually will do violence to your heart's love for Jesus. Those desires that if you give into will lead you down the wrong paths and will lead you into a life of sin to starve those out. But you don't want to leave it there and be like, well, I'm just going to starve that. I'm going to grow in willpower and I'll be able to white knuckle my behavior real good. No, you won't. 
You want to do that while at the same time you feed the Spirit. As some authors put, you want to feast on God and His will at the same time. So how do you do this? You take food and put it to the side, and then you take that time that you would spend with food, and you engage in another practice. So you might meditate on the scriptures. You might read the Bible. You might pray. You might go evangelize. You, you take that time, and you engage in something to actually feed yourself spiritually while you're not feeding yourself physically. And if you'll do this, you'll realize very quickly how much time is given to eating. Because we oftentimes think that it's like, well, it just takes me 15 minutes to scarf down my food and then I'm done. I move on with my day. You all say scarf? That was, a, that was a dad word. My dad said scarf down your food all the time. I hadn't said that or heard that in many years and it just came out of me. A nod to my dad or mom if they're watching this morning. When you think about the time it takes to meal plan and then to buy the groceries and then to load the groceries and unload the groceries, and prep the food, and cook the food, and eat the food, and clean up from the prep and the cooking of the food. Like, there's a lot of time involved. And I understand some of you are like, uh, I'm a mother with, like, kids in the home. If I'm fasting, they're not fasting, so I'm not going to save all that time anyway. I, I know, I understand. Some of you would save it, some of you wouldn't. But you take that time, and you begin to, as maybe a hunger pain comes, or just the desire to go eat a Reese cup because your kid's bag of candy from October and Halloween season is loaded with them, right? As the desire comes, you take that and you leverage that in a way of like, that's a reminder, that is a cue to pray more. That is a cue to pray for this request that I'm putting before the Lord. That is a cue to go read my Bible for a few minutes. You use that as a, as a cue to help you that you're, you're starving the flesh and at the same time you're feeding the spirit. And if you'll do that with food, people have long noted, like for centuries, for millennia, that if you do that with food and fasting, it has a profound impact on so many other fleshly desires, the lust and the affections of the flesh. That it begins to curb down so many others. This is the way that Foster put it in his book that I mentioned earlier. Our human cravings and desires, they're like rivers that tend to overflow their banks. Fasting helps to keep them in their proper channels. Thomas Akempis said as much when he said, refrain from gluttony and you will more easily restrain all the inclinations of the flesh. There's someone in our church who, I asked them if I could allude to this, but leave them nameless, but they did a 40-day fast a number of years ago. And we were talking about it while they were going through it and why they were going through it. And what they found was, it had a profound impact on their sexual urges and desires that were malformed while they were fasting from food and that the domino effect on all of the flesh and all the appetites was far richer than they ever could have anticipated that it was. And many have found that that's the case. But if you'll focus on this one area, it really does ripple into so many other areas of your life. So you want to, why do it? Starve the flesh and feed the spirit, not eating food so that you can feast on the Lord and his will. You would also do it to strengthen prayer. Prayer and fasting are like the oldest and dearest of friends. And more often than not, when you see fasting in the Bible, it is, it is immediately followed by or preceded by prayer. 
that they prayed and they fasted, or they fasted and they prayed. And the idea is not that you can manipulate God. The idea is not that if I have a request, God, would you give me a raise? That if I fast, then God automatically now can do it, and I'm the puppet master, and God owes me. That's not the idea at all. But it is the idea that it puts a special emphasis and urgency on it and that God sees we are deeply serious about it if we fast while we pray. And he takes note of that, no doubt about it. You find this over and over again when people have heavy requests or big things that they will not just pray and not just pray often about it, but they will couple the prayer with with fasting and it does strengthen or reinforce our prayer life. You experience this with your kids, right? When your kids make lots of requests of you, can I have a snack? Can I go to bed late? Can I this? Can I that? But occasionally they'll make a request and you can tell like they really want it. And it feels really important to them. And as a parent, you may, you may or may not say yes. It may be healthy to say yes or it may not be. It's, it's very situation specific. But you get a deeper urge to want to say yes because it means so much to them. And it is a way for us to express that this means a lot to our Heavenly Father. You could find <coughs> that people uh, fast in order to find God's guidance for a situation. And if you have a heavy, heavy decision, it would be a recommendable practice to put with prayer to actually seek God's guidance. You could find that in Judges or in Acts 14, expressing grief and contrition for sin, not as a way to do penance for sin. Let's make that clear. Because the practice of fasting for hundreds of years was abused and misused by the church. And it became this, let me flog myself spiritually so that I could do penance and earn God's favor and earn forgiveness of sins. That is never the case. Forgiveness of sins is based off of our faith in Jesus. He did all of the earning and we just get to reap the benefits. But it is proper that if there is real grief and contrition over our sin, that that may at times show up with fasting as well. The people of Nineveh are a great example of that. That when they turn to the Lord, they grieve over their sin and they put on sackcloth and they fast for a period of time because of their sin. You would also find to seek deliverance and protection. This is something that you would see in, um, even in modern times or in American history. You find it in the Bible that the army will fast and pray in order to have God's deliverance or protection or to seek his wisdom. But America has done this. Multiple presidents have called the country during times of war to spend a day praying and fasting. Why? To seek God. And we want your deliverance. We want your protection. Abraham Lincoln called on the country to do this three different occasions during the Civil War. Uh, One of the more famous ones of recent year is Winston Churchill in World War II. He called on the nation to spend a day in prayer and fasting leading up to what became known as the miracle of Dunkirk. Uh, There was a movie actually made about this in recent years, I think maybe 2017 or 2018, and you can watch it. It leaves off like all of the spirituality, which no one in that day left off the spirituality. They deeply connected it back to God. But the the Allied forces were being beaten back by Nazi Germany, so much so that they were pushed to the very edge of France on the beaches of Dunkirk in 1940, in May. 
and they knew that they were toast. There were 400,000 of them and there were 800,000 German forces and they knew to still align from Hamilton that they were outgunned and outmanned and outnumbered and outplanned. They were, they were toast. And they had two choices. One, try to do a counterattack, get obliterated, surrender, and the army be done with. Or two, try to evacuate as many of the army as they could across the English Channel back home to Great Britain. They chose the latter. They chose the evacuation. And the best estimates were that out of 400,000, they could get 40,000 men back across. The best they could do was 10%. But 10% is better than 0%. So they did. Churchill called for the nation to spend a day of prayer and fasting. They say that in Great Britain, the lines for the churches, like there were lines down around the blocks of people waiting to get into churches that day to pray and ask God to deliver them. And for nine days after that, the evacuation started. It was nine days long. And there's all these stories of things that are like, hmm, that's curious. So there was this eerie calm that came over the English Channel and it allowed what they called the little boats to go over to France. All of these weekend cruisers, tugboats, barges, 850 of them joined with the Navy to go get these men, and it was eerily calm. Out of the nine days, seven of them, there was a storm. The German airfield was a ways away, and there were storms there, not where they were at on the beaches, but there that grounded all the German planes to allow them not to fly and not to bomb. And the most curious one is that someone suggested, like it went up the, up the flagpole to Hitler that they should stop their tanks and for some reason, and we still to this day don't know why, other than if you're looking at it from the filter of praying and fasting, that it was a God thing, that Hitler actually said yes, and they stopped all the tanks from moving. Three days later, they rescinded that order, but no one has any idea as to why, because it would have crushed them. And the net result was that they were able to evacuate 340,000 of the 400,000 uh, troops across the English Channel, and their best estimates of 10% were obliterated, and they got 90% of the troops back home. And it became known as the miracle of Dunkirk. All of this, the only thing I'm trying to say is that all this was precipitated by Churchill's understanding that we should spend a day of prayer and fasting as a nation to seek God's deliverance and God's protection, which is an inherently biblical idea that you would want to pray and fast in certain situations, in certain scenarios, so that God would show up. I must hustle through these to convey concern for the work of God. You can read Nehemiah for that. To declare love and worship to God. Anna is a great example of that in Luke 2. This widow woman who gave herself continually to prayer and fasting in the temple. And she's able, Anna's this like unsung hero of the Christmas story that she gets to hold baby Jesus to stand in solidarity with the poor is why some have done it. Here is maybe the best way to sum it up. John Piper said that fasting is when we hunger for God. What do you mean hunger for God? Well, it could mean a fresh encounter with God or for God to answer a prayer or for God to save someone or for God to work powerfully in our church or for God to guide us or protect us and on and on we could go. But we desire and hunger uh, for God more than the food that God made us to live on. That is, that is the principle of why we would fast and make this a practice. So how might we do this? Just a couple quick uh, pro tips 
maybe to help you if you want to engage with this and, uh, and begin a journey with fasting. So number one is have the right motives. Not to show off the idea of, of fasting for a Christian is not even to lose weight, although that may be a, a, a consequence of doing it. Not to manipulate God. Uh, not to seek attention that bears reiterating because that's the one Jesus specifically talked about, that you're not trying to draw attention. That doesn't mean that you can never do a fast with your community or with your small group or with your church. That does happen. It's not like no one can ever know that you fasted. You're just not trying to draw attention to yourself or get a pat on the back because of it. Number three, and this is important, in conjunction with celebration. So you don't want to fast all the time, okay? The goal is not for you to be a monk locked up in a monastery, taking a vow of poverty and a vow of silence and never eating anything. That's not the goal. There's a place for fasting. There's also a place for celebrating. The nation of Israel was called to do a nationwide fast on the Day of Atonement as a way to show that they truly were contrite for their sins. They were also called to have the Feast of the Passover and to have a great time and eat and drink and laugh and remember what God had done. And you want to put both of those together. The early church, just to give you two minutes of, of church history on fasting, the early church had a habit, as was the custom of Jesus' day, that they fasted twice a week. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees were known for fasting. He mentions that in Matthew 6. But they fasted on, forgive me if I get my days wrong, but I believe it was Monday and Thursday were the Pharisees' fast days. And you can read in the Didache, which is one of the earliest church documents, that you, the church was called not to fast on the Pharisee days. They were like, let the Pharisees have those. Like, we don't, we don't want to be on their turf. We're going to fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. Those were the two days. This was generally sun up to sundown. Normally it was those two days. When the sun is up, we're not going to eat. We may get up early. I don't know, have a bagel and a coffee and then go about our day. And then once the sun goes down, we'll eat a late dinner. But that's how the, the fast was on those two days. But they were forbidden to fast on Saturday or Sunday. And the reason they didn't want to fast on Saturday or Sunday was Saturday was the Sabbath and was the celebration and this downtime. It, wa it wasn't an abstinence time. It was more engaging with the Lord and with your family and even eating. And then Sunday was the Lord's day. And those were celebration days these were fasting days, and they put them uh, opposite of each other. The early church pretty quickly developed a habit of fasting before Easter. So in between what is now known as like Good Friday and Easter Sunday, that Saturday they would fast, and that would lead them into Easter. And then relatively quickly, the idea of what we would now know as Lent became uh, popular in the church, but it was far more centered on true fasting, it was far more of a sun up to sundown for 40 days you didn't eat. And at night you ate a very simple meal, uh, no alcohol, no meat, and, and it was very simple. And you did that for 40 days. Then the Saturday before Easter, you didn't eat at all. And then you'd roll into Easter and you'd have a celebration and a feast. Can you imagine? Now, Easter lunch is fantastic every year, no matter what, right? Can you imagine eating Easter lunch? on the heels of 40 days of kind of intermittent fasting of not when the sun is up and then going into a, an all-day fast and then you get to celebrate Easter after that. Like it would up the, the ante, wouldn't it? Like that lunch would taste so good. But the, the point is that they tried to couple them together. 
And, and it was like, let's fast and let's celebrate. Let's not just do all fasting. Incidentally, many people believe that the, the idea of Ramadan that the Muslims do came from that idea of Lent and that their fasting while the sun is up is, uh, is, is rooted actually in what the Christian church did. So the point is do it in conjunction with, uh, with celebration. You lose a lot of this fasting in modern church times, admittedly. Uh, but it did kind of make a resurgence with the Methodists. Anyone have, uh, you grew up Methodist, Methodist background? Let me see you, raise your hands, kind of scattered throughout the room. Um, John Wesley, father of the Methodists, was really keen on methods or what we're kind of calling practicing the practices. One of them was fasting. He actually berated the Methodist church while he was still living because they didn't fast enough. I will quote you, uh, John Wesley. I fear that there are thousands of Methodists so-called, who both in England and Ireland, who are so far from fasting twice a week, they do not fast twice a month. A man who never fasts is no more in the way to heaven as a man who never prays. Now, I'm not sure if he wrote that when he was fasting, because it seems a little bit grumpy, you know? <laughs> but nevertheless, there was this expectation that like, you're only fasting two days a month? Like, get with the program, guys. Like, that's, that's kind of how he viewed it, you know? And uh, most of us, if we fasted twice a month, we would be, we'd be on cloud nine. Walk before you run. All right? I, I would not recommend that you're like, yes, I need this. 40 days starting tomorrow, right? I, I would not, I'm not saying you can't. I'm just saying set yourself up for success, all right? Maybe skip breakfast tomorrow. Try that, okay? Or skip lunch. Um, <clears throat> maybe try a juice fast for a day. Or do the sun up to sundown thing. But once the sun goes down, just eat a later dinner. Like ease into that. Uh, you want to develop, I think this is my next point, you want to develop a, a rhythm. Uh, you, you don't want this to be something that, that you just, you fall flat on your face with. Um, if you have diabetes, if you are breastfeeding, I mean, there would be some wisdom that would have to go into that. And obviously you would have to pare that down. It would be modified in many ways, but you still could engage with it in your own way uh, if, if you lose, use a little bit of wisdom there. Let the hunger pangs reserve as, as a reminder of Christ's suffering and a cue to pray, right? The goal of that is actually that you would have a cue to be like, thank you, Jesus, for your ways. Thank you, Jesus, that you suffered on a cross for me that's way, way beyond me not eating lunch today. Thank you for, for your suffering, the pain that you went through. And Jesus, here's my request. You want it to serve as a cue. Uh, break your fast with a light meal. And I like the way one author put it, a good deal of inner rejoicing. So you probably don't want to go to the buffet as soon as your fast is done. Uh, that, that may actually be counterproductive and you may give in to your, your appetites more than you would uh, typically. Build a rhythm. If you want to fast longer than three days, I would suggest picking up uh, Richard Foster's Celebration of the Disciplines. And at the end of his chapter, he has just some special notes for how to do that for three days or five days or 10 days or 40 days or whatever it may be, okay? So there's a lot more I could say, but I'll leave it there. Here's the point. Let's just summarize this, this whole sermon. You as a human are material and immaterial bound up together in profound ways. If you want to grow spiritually, 
You cannot exclude or compartmentalize your physical life and act like that has no bearing on your spiritual life. It doesn't work that way. There is a time and place for Christians to say there are fleshly lusts and appetites that sometimes run my world and I need to mortify those. I need to crucify the flesh. I need to starve that out and feed the spirit. And one of the best ways that you can do that is to actually begin in even small ways a practice of fasting. And I have not arrived. I'm, I'm the first to admit it but I certainly would recommend it to you. The bit that I know and the bit that I've done has been really helpful for me and leads me to believe that I should do more of it. And I'd stand a reason that probably most of us could do more of this. So let's take a minute, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Jesus, we thank you for your ways. Sometimes your ways seem so appealing and just bottom shelf, like, absolutely, that's so smart. There are other times where your ways seem hard, unappealing, something we would rather not do. But Jesus, I pray that we would have faith enough to trust you enough that you know how life is best lived that you know that when we give into all of our desires and impulses and we just live for the pleasure of the moment, that the long-term effects of that are so unhealthy for us. You know how to best be human. And Jesus, may we take you at your word and even look at your life and lean into it, knowing and believing that even when we're abstaining, even when we're telling ourselves no, that it is for our benefit. Help us to be balanced in this. Help us to not view our spirituality as spirituality by subtraction or thinking that we're better than someone because we fast. May we never have the wrong motives or heart, but may we engage, I pray. And I pray this in your name. This morning, I want you to take a minute and my call to, to action for you is number one, if you're a Christian, thank Jesus for his suffering. Thank him for being willing to take the hard road, whether it's fasting in the wilderness or going to the cross and to see the purpose and to do it. Thank him for that. If you would like to begin this practice, you know, this week, this month, then I would encourage you to commit that to the Lord right here and right now. That may not be for everybody this morning, but if that is for you, I would encourage you to ask for his help, his wisdom, his strength, his grace, and let him know, like, I want to grow in this. Understand it will take time. It will take training. It will not feel good or natural at first, but that's okay. Commit it to him nevertheless. And if you're in the room and you don't know Jesus, he did suffer in your place way beyond abstaining from food. He put his whole body on the hook of suffering. He died on a cross for our sins so that he could redeem us and save us so that he could deliver us from this body of death. 
And if you've never put your faith in him, where you sit, call out to him, cry out to him, and put your faith in Jesus. He'd love to save you. He'd love to forgive you. He would love to change you from the inside out. Just tell him that you believe that he died on the cross. Tell him that you believe that he rose from the dead. Then put your faith in him and him alone.